Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, recording late Tuesday night after a brutal, horrible, painful loss by the Celtics. That was just flat-out torture that we witnessed at the Garden on Tuesday night. Just an inexplicable no-show by this team. More on that in just a second. We will chat with my buddy, John Jastrzemski. JJ, of course, from New York, New York, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. JJ is a big Dolphins fan, and he covers the Jets in New York, obviously, so JJ and I are going to rank the top five offseason moves in the AFC East. We'll get into some baseball as well, and we'll get into the other series in the Eastern Conference, although that may be irrelevant for the Celtics going forward based on what happened with this team tonight. So you see the warmups they're wearing? Unfinished business. Stop wearing those, please. Stop wearing those unfinished business because they don't treat these games like it's unfinished business from what transpired a year ago in the NBA Finals. They are now three and three on their home court at the Garden in the postseason. No more unfinished business shirts. Burn those, get rid of those, because they're clearly not treating this postseason like it's unfinished business, okay? This team has caught so many breaks. No heat in the first series. Then Milwaukee is eliminated in the first round by Miami. So you inherit the top seed in the entire NBA playoffs, right? And then Joel Embiid does not play in game one, and he's completely hobbled in game two. And he really wasn't himself until game five tonight, which I'll get into in a second here, but missed opportunity in game one when they don't have Joel Embiid. How many breaks does this Celtics team have to catch to actually take advantage of them, right? And what do the Celtics do? Well, they're on the verge of throwing this whole opportunity away. They have to go save their season in Philadelphia just to have the right to play a game seven on their home court to try to advance to the conference finals. That's where the Celtics are at right now. And I mean, you just look at it, the no-show in game one with no Joel Embiid, the late-game miscues in game four, we've talked about this the other day, Tatum doesn't go quick enough, Missoula doesn't use his timeout, 
Jalen with the double team on Harden. And by the way, that last play too, Marcus Smart's walking it up the court. Just so many miscues in game four. And what happens there is you allow this game five to occur where instead of being up 3-1 or instead of the the series maybe being over if you had just won game one and finished off game four, instead you have this game five where you inexplicably no-show. You just lost in humiliating fashion. Those last plays at the end of the game, everybody was talking about those nationally. That's all anybody was talking about nationally, how the Celtics fucked it up late in the game. And this is how you respond. You lay an egg in your home building. It's just embarrassing. You would expect a tough team, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe the Celtics aren't a tough team, to battle back and show grit and come out on fire. Not the Celtics team. They come out, and the defense is once again atrocious. The first 25 possessions of this game for Philadelphia, they had 40 points. That is a 160 offensive rating. A 160 offensive rating. No team in the NBA had an offensive rating north than 119 this year. The Celtics, the first 25 possessions today, they gave up 40 points. They no-show defensively. And this is a theme of the postseason so far. If you look at it, they've had these great defensive performances where in their wins, they have a 105.8 defensive rating. The Cavaliers led the league at 109.9. So they've been way better than the Cavaliers in their wins. In their losses, they have a 125 defensive rating. The San Antonio Spurs posted a 119.6 defensive rating this season, last in the league. The Celtics in the losses prior to tonight's game, 125.5. What was their defensive rating tonight? 121.1. 121.1. So again, you're significantly worse than the San Antonio Spurs who are tanking or tanked this season to try to get Victor Wembanyama. That's how bad this team is in the postseason when they lose games. Their defense becomes worse than the San Antonio Spurs. And this whole idea of this defense, hey, they can switch all over the place. This is like what we thought about this team, right? They have so many elite defenders. It looks like a fallacy. It looks like false advertising. Like this whole idea, oh, there's nobody more versatile than the Celtics defensively. Oh, really? Because I just see teams scoring very easily like this Philadelphia team and teams routinely, whether it be Atlanta, whether it be Philly, putting up offensive ratings north of 120. This Celtics team has now become easy to score on. This is supposed to be entering the season. I know they became more of an offensive team. This was supposed to be a strength of the team. And in the postseason, when they've needed their defense, complete no-shows. And the other thing about the game on Tuesday night, you can't stop fouling. They sent the Philadelphia 76ers to the free throw line 27 times. The Pistons were last in the league, giving up 26.2 free throws per game. The Celtics gave up 27. Obviously, Philadelphia gets to the line a ton because of Embiid and because of James Harden, but the Celtics were fourth in the league, giving up just 21.1 free throw attempts per game. Tonight, they're at 27. So you kept bailing them out, right? And you have these dumb fouls, like Jalen taking another foul on a James Harden three. How about Grant Williams? He comes into the game. It's 48-39, and he's covering... Joel Embiid, right? He's covering Joel Embiid, and Joel Embiid's sort of on the wing extended, if you will. Grant has help behind him in Al Horford, and what does he do? He reaches in on Joel Embiid and, like, tries to block his shot? I have no idea what he's trying to do there. What What is the upside there? First of all, even if, like, you're not going to block the shot, first of all. You just grab him on the arm. And second of all, even if he gets by you, you have help. And what's he going to do there? Shoot a shot from the side? Okay, you live with him hitting that jump shot. But you certainly don't foul there. 
and send him to the line where he shoots north of 85%. And then there's your best player, okay? So the defense has been atrocious. That's the number one thing. The no-shows with the defense is something I did not expect because even when they went through their lulls defensively this season, I felt like, hey, when they need to turn it on, they will. And we saw that at certain points this season when they needed to turn on the defense, they will. They have it so far in the postseason. It's like they've built up all these habits as this offensive team. They thought their offense will just take them through everything. That hasn't been the case whatsoever, right? And then the other component here is your best player just hasn't been good enough. Flat out, Jason Tatum. And I know you can tell me he ends up with the 36 points. He ends up with the 10 rebounds and he ends up with the five assists. That's not the story, though. The story is that Jason Tatum continually gets off to these slow starts and he continues to play poorly in first quarters. And the team, coincidentally, is playing horrible in the first quarter of the last two games. Why? Because your best player has been not effective, has been a complete no-show, and he can't throw the ball in the damn ocean, right? I mean, think about these numbers. Tatum, the last two first quarters, he's played both of them in their entirety. 24 minutes. He's 0 of 10 from the field. He's 0 of 5 from three-point territory. Two points. He's a minus 15. So in the last 24 minutes in the first quarters of these last two games, games four and games five, Jason Tatum has played 24 minutes, and the Celtics have been outscored by 15 points in those minutes. 15 points in 24 minutes, and Jason Tatum has contributed two points, and they were a gift because they had a late foul call on Joel Embiid that got him to the free throw line. And then if you just look at it overall, Jason Tatum in his last four games, 31 of 74, 41.9%, 7 of 31, 22.6% from deep, okay? It's shocking that you've actually won two of those games when your guy that is supposed to be your superstar has shot the ball this poorly. It just isn't enough, right? And here's the whole thing. This is a game that the Celtics needed to win at home, game five, after a bad loss, and Jason Tatum played a role in that loss, right? Jason Tatum went too late, and he kicked it out to Marcus Smart too late in that particular situation in that game. It wasn't good enough, right? We can blame Joe Mazzulla all we want, and I certainly did, but Jason Tatum's going to be better there. And you figured, okay, after, if I'm Jason Tatum, I have that issue at the end of the game. I want to come back. I want to set the tone. That's what a superstar needed to do tonight. You're supposed to be the best player on the court, right? You're the first team All-NBA guy. And I get it. You have the MVP on the other side. But you're playing in your building. You're supposed to be the best player. You're supposed to set the tone in this game. What do you do? Complete no-show, two points. And for the second consecutive game, you don't hit a single shot from the field in the first quarter. That's how you respond to the bad loss. You're supposed to be, and even if you're not the vocal leader of the team, you're supposed to lead by example. Jason Tatum didn't do that. It just, it's sort of... A situation here where I'm having flashbacks to what transpired in the NBA Finals last year, where Jason Tatum, offensively, he's got all this talent, he has all these skills, but he's just limited in terms of his shot profile. He can't score from any areas on the court. I mean, and if you look at it, two-point shots in between the restricted area, so basically at the basket, and the three-point line. So basically, your floaters, your runners, and your mid-rangers. Jason Tatum, 4 of 12 tonight on two-point shots outside of the restricted area. And if you look at it now, against Philadelphia, he's 9 of 31 on those shots, 29%. Last year in the NBA Finals, he's 9 of 36, 25%. So he really cannot score unless he gets all the way to the basket or he gets to the free throw line. Because the reality is this, he loves to take three-pointers, but he's not shooting the three-pointer well. 
He's 3 of 11 in the game on Tuesday, 27.9%. So now in the postseason, he is 32 of 96. 32 of 96, 33.3% from deep. So essentially what Jason Tatum is right now is a player that can only score at the free throw line or at the rim. So basically, he's like a big man. He's like a 90s big man based on where he's scoring. Now, I'm not saying his shot profile is that way. He's taking a shit ton of threes. He just doesn't hit any. So he can't hit threes. He can't hit mid-rangers consistently. He doesn't want to take mid-rangers. He can't hit floaters or runners. Like when he hit one tonight, I'm like, oh, this is unbelievable. He actually hit one. He actually hit a floater. Like, oh, wow. Cue the duck boats. But he cannot score if he if his three's not falling, which it hasn't been falling basically all postseason. And he can't score unless he gets to the rim or the free throw line. That's just where he's at. He's limited. Now, we saw him last year go into Milwaukee and go for 46 when the season was on the line. I've deemed that the most important game of Jason Tatum's career. You're going to need that again because he's been bad in the series. No way around it. You wanted him to take a step forward, and the guy can only hit layups and free throws right now. That's it. He can only hit layups, dunk the ball, or hit free throws. He's very limited right now in terms of what he can actually do. And... As bad as he was in this first half, he had chances to get you back in the game. He really did, and he just couldn't do it. It's 69-57, chance to cut it to single digits. He misses a wide-open three, which has sort of been a theme of this postseason for Jason Tatum. He can't hit threes. 71-57, chance to cut it to 11, misses a wide-open three. Then, so again, chance to cut the lead, can't do it. Then he was ripped by Melton. From behind, goes the other way, makes it 84-66. And Melton has given him trouble just sort of getting his hands in there and tipping the ball away from Tatum. Then he smokes a layup that leads to a layup on the other end to make it 86-69. I mean, how many times have we seen this from him and Brogdon in the series where they just almost like gun the ball off the backboard? Then he bricked a three. And then after that, he got the ball back. And then he turned it over and led to a house layup on the other end to make it 102-83. So my whole point with Tatum is at some point, your best player has to be great. He hasn't. And right now, he hasn't even played well. He can't throw the ball in the ocean right now. And at some point, Jason Tatum is going to take over one of these games and win it for you, and he's not doing it. And the lack of an ability to get off to a quick start, it's just alarming. He's playing the whole first quarter, and he can't do anything. He can't hit a shot. It's just unbelievable to me. When you need him right now, he hasn't shown up, right? So the other thing I'll say is Jalen, he was three of eight from the free throw line. And he missed a couple of key ones, right? He drives, he gets to the lane when it's 94-81. Trying to get yourself back in this game, he misses both of them. So you can't be three of eight from the free throw line. We've seen this with Jalen before where he's missed critical free throws. You can go back to the regular season. We think about that Knicks game where Julius Randle was laughing at him. He did it in another game as well. Like he, for some reason really has these struggles at the free throw line. And then I thought he just had some really, some plays in this game that just made you kind of scratch your head. He picked up his first foul with the score eight to five. And the reason I bring this up is just because he got himself in foul trouble in game four. You can't have that happen again. And he picks up a foul on Embiid where if you're going to foul Embiid there, it's eight five, it's early in the game. Wrap him up and don't let him hit the layup. Instead, he just sort of tries to strip Embiid so he follows him, hits him on the arm, and what do you know, Embiid is still able to hit the shot. So Jalen, first of all, the foul wasn't worth it because Embiid still scores. He ties the game up at 8-8, eight to eight, but what was the damn point of that? Like, if you're going to follow him, follow him. If it's me and I'm Jalen Brown 
and I know last game I got myself into foul trouble, I'm just not committing that foul. So he does the worst of both situations. He commits the foul and he doesn't stop the bucket. That's just not a good play from a really good player. And then later on, he went right by Tucker, but Harden is sitting there in the lane, ready to take a charge. So instead of trying to get around him, he just tries to go through Harden. It's a clear charge and it's Jalen Brown's third foul of the game. So it's 51-39 at that point. You pick up your third foul of the game where everybody can see that James Harden is sitting there and he's ready to take a charge. All you have to do is do a Euro, get around him, or just stop on a dime and shoot a little floater there. The only thing you can't do is go through James Harden and you do that there to pick up your third foul, get yourself into foul trouble because you're out of control. And then, of course, I mentioned earlier, he fouled Harden on a three where Harden made two of the three, but that makes the game 82-64. I mean, you just can't have those things, right? Where the first foul was dumb, the third foul is inexplicable. Harden's right there. You can see him. It's not like Harden came out of nowhere. He is right there. And then you can't foul three-point shooters. Jalen did that. So I wonder, too, how much not being involved late in these games, and obviously not this game tonight because nobody was involved late because it didn't fucking matter. But anyway, I wonder how much of these late-game situations where Jalen's not being heavily involved in the offense, if it's starting to irritate him, right? Where Jalen's basically just a spacer in the corner. Because if you look at the series prior to tonight, taking out game two because that was the blowout, so that fourth quarter didn't matter. But if you look at game one and you look at the shot attempts, fourth quarter, Brogdon five, Tatum four, Smart four, Jalen two. Game three, Tatum four, Smart four, Jalen three. Game four on Sunday, fourth quarter in overtime, Smart took seven, Tatum took six, and Jalen took three. So in all these games, Jalen is taking fewer shots in the fourth quarter in overtime, counting the game on Sunday, than Jason Tatum, of course, which, okay, you can live with that, but also Marcus Smart. And in one of the games, Malcolm Brogdon took more shots as well. So I do wonder if that's sort of, how do you deal with that if you're Jalen Brown, right? Like you're the all-star and Smart's the guy that's more involved late in these games where... And remember, Jalen Brown is taking on the matchup of covering James Harden because Marcus Smart couldn't do it in game one. And if you're Jalen Brown, you're like, OK, I'm picking up your job. You're supposed to be the former defensive player of the year. You're supposed to be able to handle James Harden. You can't do it. I have to do it. And then at the end of these games in the fourth quarter, I'm not involved because you have to be involved in all the actions because Smart can't shoot. So they're not going to put Smart in the corner to be the spacer. So Jalen's out there. As the spacer in the close games, I'm talking about the game on Sunday, and I do wonder if that starts to sort of seep into Jalen and Jalen starts to be sort of aggravated by that. And then you wonder, like, is the effort level the same when you know, okay, if this is a close game, I'm not going to be involved. It's going to be Marcus like that has to sort of weigh on Jalen Brown. And by the way, if this ends against Philly, you may have a Jalen problem again because we've talked about all this stuff going on throughout the season. And now the lack of involvement in these fourth quarters, like Jalen's going to be asked about this if the Celtics lose to Philly. Like, hey, Jalen, what did you think of these fourth quarters? And Jalen will answer honestly. So that's why hopefully the announcement on Wednesday night, seven o'clock, he makes all NBA because if he doesn't make all NBA, the Celtics have a problem. They, they really do. They have a problem. You look at it with the new CBA the contract extension can increase by 140%. So that would mean if Jalen doesn't get the Supermax, he's eligible for four for 190. From a business perspective, no reason to sign that when he could go for the Supermax again and get five for 290. And if he doesn't qualify for the Supermax and he only has one year remaining on the contract, he may say, okay, let's play it out 
and see if I qualify for the Supermax. But we already know he's been sort of unhappy with some stuff. So, and remember, he gave the quote to Logan Murdoch from The Ringer. As long as I'm needed, it's not up to me. We'll see how they feel about it over time and I feel about them over time. Hopefully, whatever it is, it makes sense. But I'll stay where I'm wanted. I will stay where I'm needed and treated correct. Okay? So, you do wonder if Jalen doesn't make the all-NBA team and qualifies for the Supermax, does he start to think about going elsewhere? Because, I mean, and the other component to this is the Celtics are not going to have a commitment from Jalen because there's no reason financially for him to sign it. Because even if he doesn't make the Supermax, he can try for it again with the Celtics, or he would get five for 255 if he just signed the regular max contract after next season with the Celtics. So the Celtics really don't have a lot of leverage here. And remember, he's been aggravated with the organization in the past. He said... Remember him and Kevin, he had that three-way call with Jason Tatum and Brad Stevens after he found out about the Kevin Durant rumors again. And remember, like, he really liked Ime. He said about Ime, I wanted to see him back on his feet here no matter what it was. I don't think that's the wrong way to feel. And remember, Houston has a ton of cap space, like the most cap space in the entire NBA. And Ime's going to be there, right? And I just look at it, and look, I'm not saying he wants to go to Houston. I'm not saying he definitely wants to play with Ime. I just look at it from the perspective of, you better hope he gets the Supermax. Because all this stuff that's been going on, where Jalen gave out all these interviews this season, and if he doesn't get the Supermax, and now we have another component to this, where he's not involved in the fourth quarters of these games, don't you think he's going to start to get even more aggravated? All right, but anyway, that's for the offseason, although we're going to know a lot about it on Wednesday night. But anyway... The other thing is the Celtics guards, Smart, White, and Brogdon, none of them played well. And one of them at least has to be good. Ideally, you want two of these guys to play well, right? Like that's the whole idea of having this guard depth that the Celtics have, right? At least two of the three will play well, right? And even if, hey, if one of the three plays well, all of the three played well. They combined to go seven of 22, 31.8%, three of nine from deep, 33.3%. So they were just atrocious. And to the point where... Joe Masula put Peyton Pritchard in the game to see if he could give you something because none of these other guys were giving you anything. And you look at Derek White. Remember when he was like great in the postseason? 24 and 26 in his first two games against Atlanta. He had an 18-point game. He had a 19-point game against Atlanta. 17.3 in the first round. He's down to 10.2 in this series. And they have a lot of weak defenders that you can score on. And Derek White just has not had his moments in this series. This is after he was named all-defensive team this year. Uh, today, second team, all defensive team. Congratulations, Tim. Well-deserved for what he did during the regular season. But tonight he played 34 minutes and he took six shots. He took six shots in 34 minutes. I mean, that's, he's not aggressive like he was in the Atlanta series, right? Like he knew there were matchups to attack against Atlanta. There are against Philly too. Like he should be a guy that's going at Maxi, and they're not doing that whatsoever. And he's just not having that impact. You go to the last series, he, there wasn't a game where he took six shots or less. You just wonder what's happened to Derek White over these past couple of games because it's not like he's gone out there like he did last year and he's just bricking a bunch of shots. That's not the case. It's just he's not aggressive and you need Derek White to be aggressive out there. He's just not giving you that same level of impact. And on the other side, Maxie showed up for the Sixers, right? He has 30 points, 10 of 21 from the field. He's 6 of 12 from deep. Maxie was outstanding. He was the second best player for Philadelphia. Quite frankly, he was the second best player in the game, and he was the best guard on the court. So him and Harden, as a duo, outscored your trio of guards. They go for 47, 
the trio of Brogdon, Smart, and White go for 28. So Philadelphia's backcourt duo outscores your backcourt by 19. And even if you say, hey, Brian, those guys are going to outscore them, not by 20 points, right? Not by 19 points in a game. Your guards have got to be better than that. And then there's Al Horford, right? Like nobody played well for the Celtics. You look at Al, Atlanta, they probably regret staying glued to Al in that series because remember, they were treating him like he was an elite shooter. Like they would stay glued to him and it was opening up all these driving lanes for the Celtics. We talked about that during the Atlanta series. And if you look at Al tonight, 0 of 7 from deep. And now in the postseason, he's 18 of 58, which is 31%. He shot 44.6% during the season, second best in the league. So he's down 13.6 percentage points. He cannot buy a bucket right now. And it does look, at least from my perspective, and I'm not a shooting coach. I'm not trying to pretend to be a shooting coach. But right now, he looks like he's in his head. He looks like this is in his head right now. And on top of that, I saw the worst sequence I've seen from Al Horford in some time. So at the time, the score is 53-41. He drives a closeout, does Al, and as he's driving the closeout, Derek White cuts to the basket. If he throws the ball to Derek White, and Derek White's right in front of him when he makes the cut, like he can see him. It's not like he's out of it. He's like literally in his sight path. He doesn't throw the ball to Derek White then. So he drives into the lane. Help comes over on Al. So Al just tries to throw it out to Derek White. He can't see Derek White now. He knows that Derek White has gone past him because he's cutting the other way because he didn't give him the ball when he cut to the basket. Derek White is like out by the wing. He just kind of tosses the ball out of bounds. It was one of the most bizarre turnovers I've seen. He just kind of threw it up in the air. And the next possession down the court, he fouls Embiid with 155 left in the half when it's 55-41. Or excuse me, when it's 53-41, and that makes it 55-41. So he has the bad turnover on one end, and then he comes back and he fouls Embiid. Just a really, really bad sequence from Al Horford. So Al's shooting is not carried over to the postseason. And this was just another example where he didn't have a shot in this game, obviously, by the numbers 0 of 7. But even when his shot hasn't been there throughout this postseason run, Al's had an impact. He really has. He's had some really good defensive games, despite the fact that, yeah, at times, Trey Young took advantage of him. James Harden took advantage of him. But even if I go back to the game on Sunday, game four, he blocked Embiid three times down the stretch of that game. And we didn't see the impact from Al Horford whatsoever in this game. And then there was Joel Embiid, right? And this is the problem that you have where you dropped game one and because you blew game four, you open this thing open for Joel Embiid where Joel Embiid can look at this and hey, he really, he's had decent games, but he hasn't had the Joel Embiid MVP game yet. And tonight he had the Joel Embiid MVP game. And the problem is this game shouldn't have mattered. Like the MVP game from Joel Embiid shouldn't have mattered, but now he can have that MVP impact because you left the series open. Even if you just won one of the two games, game one, or you didn't choke game four away, this game doesn't matter as much because you're still up 3-2 and you still have two opportunities in either game six in Philly or game seven at home to win the series. But now the Joel Embiid MVP moment is very impactful because they take the 3-2 series lead. He finished with 33 in the game, a game high plus 21, and he was the best player on the floor without question. And... If you look at it, it's all the stuff you're not supposed to do to Embiid. The Celtics did in this game tonight. So you look at it. He took this season 11.7 free throws per game, second in the league, and he hits 85.7% of them. So if you send him to the line, he's going to hit both free throws most of the time. He's 10 of 11 tonight. You send him to the free throw line 11 times. So you might as well just give him the 10 points because that's what he's going to do. You gave him 10 points there. 
a place that he wants to live, the free throw line. You sent him there just like everybody sends him there during the regular season. And then you gave him 11 long mid-rangers. And you can say, well, those are inefficient shots, not for Embiid. He had five of them. So that's 10 points that were not contested because the Celtics are just letting him take these long mid-rangers. And I don't get it. He takes 21% of his shots via cleaning the glass from the long mid-range this season, 99th percentile. It's like one or two guys in the entire league take more long mid-rangers than Joel Embiid, and one of them's Kevin Durant. Like, that's it. Like, not many people take more long mid-rangers than Joel Embiid. Why? Because he shoots 51% on long mid-rangers. Because what happens during the regular season is these teams cannot defend Joel Embiid in the post, right? They do not want Joel Embiid to get to the block. So what transpires is teams will give up the long mid-rangers because they feel like we can't defend him. And the Celtics are doing that. They're playing like some of the sorry-ass teams across the league that say, hey, we'll just concede the long mid-ranger. Well, the problem is he fucking hits them. And this guy is just taking basically free-throw jumpers in this game tonight. It's inexplicable to me. Why are you just giving these up? And especially after he starts hitting like three in a row, maybe press up on him and not allow him to have these easy... They're free-throws. He's taking free-throws. You're giving up... First of all, you're sending him to the line, but then you're also giving him free throws. It's just so aggravating to me. So he got 20 points in areas that he likes to live. The free throw line and the long mid-rangers. You gave him up 20 points there, or you gave up to him 20 points there. That's the fucking scouting report, and you just continually gave those up. But really, it shouldn't have mattered because you shouldn't have let them back in the series, and unfortunately, because you couldn't win game one when he didn't play, and you choked away game four... Now it's a series, and now he took over the series to make it 3-2. to two. It's so aggravating to me. How many times are you going to watch this? Where he gets wide-open shots at the free-throw line. He lives there. He hits those. Get up. Everybody knows that. If I can get this information, the Celtics have this information, don't let him take those shots. It's so aggravating. And then there's Joe Mazzula. After the game, first of all, he said it was their first bad game of the postseason. Really? I mean, <laughs> we, we, I, mean I know he came back. In game four, we watched you choke that away. What about game five against Atlanta? What about game three against Atlanta when your defense was a complete no-show? Those weren't bad games. It's the only bad game. I don't understand that. Then he had this quote. I think we had the right intentions to play hard. What the hell does that mean? I think we had the right intentions to play hard. I hope you plan to play hard, but I don't even know what that means. It, it mean you wanted to play hard, but you didn't play hard? It's like you tell your wife, Hey, yeah, I'll mow the lawn. And then when she comes home, yeah, honey, sorry, I forgot. The PGA championship was on, so I got buried, and I didn't get out there to mow the lawn. Now, I intended to do so, but I got hammered. Like, it doesn't matter what your intentions were. You didn't play hard. You weren't ready for the game. And then, look, I look at Missoula in this series, right? I know the coaching criticism has been a big thing this year. But look at everything Doc has done. Give Doc credit compared to what Missoula has done. Doc has made adjustment after adjustment, right? Where if you look at it, after the Philly timeout early in this game, Philly takes a timeout, they come out of it, they're in his own, okay? And this is what Doc continues to do because Missoula, whether he's not informing his team or whether his team's not aware of it, just pay attention next game. When you come out of a timeout, where they come out of a timeout, Philly is mucking shit up and they'll go to his zone. And the Celtics are never ready for it. It happened again tonight where they just look completely perplexed. So I don't know why they're not telling them in the huddle, hey, after these timeouts, Philly likes to come out in his zone. Celtics have not adjusted to it whatsoever. They don't score after timeouts because they do that, okay? And then the other thing I would say is, I don't know why, and I'm not telling you that Jalen was great tonight, but why are you yanking Jalen after his fourth foul when it's 80-64 to with 244 left in the third quarter? 
you're down 16 points. What are you saving Jalen for? You have to stay in the game. You have to try to get back in the game. What good is it going to do to rest Jalen Brown the final 244? Hey, let's make sure he's ready for when we're down 20 in the fourth. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. I don't give a shit that he has four fouls at that point. Just let him ride it out. Let him play. If he picks up his foul, fifth foul, oh, well, you're probably losing the game anyway, but I want to go down with my guy and you don't have him out there. It doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. Another thing that Doc did, he said, you know what? We're going to be more athletic on the wings. So he said, let's dust off Daniel House. House goes for 10 points in 14 minutes and he's running the floor. He's mucking stuff up. And this Philly team that's older, they needed some energy. He certainly gave them that. So that's a move that Doc made. Okay, and then I look at some of the other moves he's made throughout this series, right, where the zone has given the Celtics trouble. We mentioned it just not out of timeouts, but in general, they've used that when Embiid's off the court to sort of make sure the Celtics can't get into a groove offensively when Embiid's not playing. So that's one thing Doc's done. Another thing he did, and it happened especially in game four, he said Jalen McDaniels isn't playing anymore because the reason Doc did that is because what the Celtics were doing is when Jalen McDaniels was on the floor and Robert Williams was on the floor, they could put him on either Tucker or Jalen McDaniels. And then what Rob could do is he could come over as the help defender and block everything. And that's what he was doing through the first couple of games of the series when they would have either Grant or Al on Embiid, they could put Robert Williams on a non-shooter and let him roam. So what did Doc do in game four? He said, okay, Niang's playing. So when Niang was playing, there wasn't a person for Robert Williams to sort of hide out on and roam and muck everything up and be that free safety and be that unbelievable shot blocker that he's been all season long. Why? Because you have to stay with Niang because the guy is an elite shooter. So it's moves like that that we've seen Doc Rivers make throughout this series where it's been very impactful. And another thing I would mention, too, is they had no chance stopping Jalen Brown early on in the series. Right. If you're looking at game one. So what did they do? They made an adjustment. No longer is P.J. Tucker covering Jason Tatum like how they started the series. They've put Tucker on Jalen Brown because they're more worried, it feels like to me, of Jalen Brown getting downhill, getting to the basket. So they said, hey, let's put P.J. Tucker, our best wing defender, on Jalen Brown. So all those adjustments that Doc has made where, hey, I'm taking McDaniels out of the rotation. I'm putting Yang in because that's going to sort of neutralize what Robert Williams does good. Hey, we're going to put Tucker on Jalen because we think that's the better matchup. Hey, you know what we need tonight? We need to have more athleticism on the wing, somebody that can run the floor. Let's go with House. Oh, and then another thing they've done. Think about this. Joe Missoula, they made this move, and you give more credit to Jalen Brown than you give Joe Missoula because we found out that Jalen Brown said, hey, I want the Harden matchup after Harden roasted them in game one, and Joe said, hey, you got to go ask Marcus Smart. Like, that was what happened. That's what Joe Missoula says. So he goes and he asks Marcus Smart. Now Jalen has that matchup, right? So that was the adjustment the Celtics made. Then what do the 76ers do? They have done everything they possibly can to say, hey, we have to get Jalen. And Doc admitted he's stronger and bigger than Harden. They have to get him off James Harden. So what they've done is they've picked out the guys they want to target. So they're going at the Brogdons of the world where he was two of two against Brogdon in game four. Or they're going at Al. He was five of six against Al in that game four. So what Doc Rivers has done is he's put his players in more advantageous situations for them to succeed. Even like late in the game the other day, they just empty out one side of the court and it's a two-man game with Embiid and with James Harden. Just very smart decisions by Doc Rivers. And I just, you tell me, what's the move that Joe Missoula has made? 
what is it? I mean, if you want to give him credit for the Jalen thing, fine, but I would only give him half credit since it was Jalen that said, hey, I want to take on that matchup. What's what's the move he's made? He put Peyton Pritchard into the game tonight? Like, that's the move that he's made? And what did that really get you, right? I, I get they were desperate. But Doc Rivers has made really smart moves throughout this postseason. And we had, or at least in this series, I'm not going to say that I paid attention to every move he made against Brooklyn, but he's made really smart moves here. And Joe Mazzulla looks like a rookie head coach right now. That's the reality of it. And then I would say this in terms of going into game six. I know that the Celtics, they did it last year against Milwaukee. And that was an excruciating loss in game five where Bobby Portis got the free throw rebound, where all you have to do is get a rebound because they missed the free throw and you win the game and you take a 3-2 series lead. Like that was very painful. This one felt different. This was you got blown out on your home court. You were a complete no-show. And I do, I do feel like Ime would have the troops ready. Ime would be the guy getting these guys ready, getting into them, and making sure they're motivated. Are we sure that Joe Mazzulla is that guy? Or is it going to have to be one of the players that sort of rallies the troops here? Because this is desperation time, and you're going in there when what we've seen so far in this postseason or this series, Doc Rivers has made the moves. Joe Mazzulla hasn't made the moves. Now, a lot of it just comes back to your best player is going to be better. Certainly, Jason Tatum does. But your coach has looked like he's not even close to the same level as Doc Rivers. And I've never been the biggest fan of Doc Rivers as a playoff coach. But you tell me, who's better in this series? It's not even a contest right now. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll get into the top five offseason moves. Me and my buddy JJ John Jastrzemski from New York, New York, will rank the top five moves in the AFC East coming up next. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, of course, it is JJ John Jastrzemski. JJ, what is going on, man? How are you? Brian, it's a pleasure to be back. Um, I wish I was a little tanner after my 48-hour excursion uh, to South Beach (laughs) and to Miami for Game 4 with the New York Knickerbockers. My team is as dead as a doornail as they get ready for Game 5. But uh, other than that, my man, things are good. It's always fun being on off the pike. So what's happening? Not much, man. I'm just hoping the Celtics can get it together here and maybe be the team that we thought they were going to be. But hey, I wanted to get you on because, first of all, I want to go through the top five moves in the AFC East this offseason. But before that, since you mentioned it, right, you're down there in Miami for that game on Monday night. I watched pretty much that whole Knicks-Heat game, and it felt like the whole game, the Knicks were like within eight points. But at the same time, I felt the whole time they were down by like 20 points. I just had no faith they were going to come back in that game. They're shooting, what, 28% from three during the postseason, which is almost impossible to do in 2023. But on the other side of that, Butler has 27, Bam has 23 and 13. And I just look at this Miami team, who I have feared all season long, despite the fact that they have not played particularly well because I have the scars from the bubble. I have the scars from last year as well. And it just feels like, to me, that Miami team, they're so ruthless and they know exactly what they're doing every time. Hey, Jalen Brunson, we're going after you, but they just have a plan. It seems like it feels like right now, JJ, and you texted me, they're a well-oiled machine. They are a well-oiled machine and it helps Mr. Barrett that they have the best coach in the NBA, in my opinion, Eric Spolstra doing his thing with that team. Because you look at Miami's roster and outside of the great Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, who's a lottery pick. And listen, Kevin Love and Kyle Lowry, who are on the back nine, they're on 17 to 18 of their NBA careers. We're talking about a lot of undrafted guys 
Gabe Vincent, Struz, Caleb Martin. But every guy has a defined role. Every player is put in a position to succeed. Everybody on the floor can hit an outside shot. If things are breaking down, okay, we'll give it to Jimmy Butler. He'll go and make something happen. I'm telling you, they're going to finish the Knicks off. I don't know if it's in five or six. Who cares? Semantics at this point. And if the Celtics are lucky enough to get to the Eastern Conference Finals, lucky enough to get there, Miami is going to be a pain in the ass. They're going to be a total pain in the ass. They're going to give you everything they got, and they're not going to beat themselves. You're going to have to beat Miami. That's the thing. Eventually, maybe there is a talent gap with another team that they play, and that will end up being the difference. But Miami has shown you over the last few years, and they've shown you, especially this year in this postseason, they're going to play sound, quality, fundamental basketball. That's what you're going up against. Yeah, no doubt about it. And the one thing, too, about this Knicks team that I look at, JJ, is just the fact that, all right, so maybe they fizzle out against this Miami team, which, as you said, is very likely at this point. But you found out that Jalen Brunson, for the second straight year, he outplayed Donovan Mitchell in a playoff series, going back to the Dallas-Utah thing last year. He's a guy. He's legit. I mean, yeah, he has some deficiencies defensively, but he's a really good player. And now I think, like, for the first time in a long time, New York is a team, the Knicks that would be, that free agents and that stars that are disgruntled, that's a place they would like to be, especially seeing how the Garden has been this season. The playoffs have been crazy and all that. And the thing that concerns me as a Celtics fan is something I continue to talk about is this Jalen Brown situation, because I know Brian Windhorst had the report that they're monitoring the Giannis situation. But we're going to find out on Wednesday night at seven o'clock whether or not Jalen Brown makes an all-NBA team. If he doesn't make an all-NBA team, he's going to be in a situation where he cannot get the Supermax at that point and it makes no sense for him to extend because he'd just be costing himself money. Like, even if he doesn't make su- the Supermax next year, he would still get more money. So I do wonder from a Knicks perspective, if things go south for the Celtics here, and by south, I mean, if he doesn't make the All-NBA team, if this is another guy, because they have pretty much all their draft picks, JJ, correct me if I'm wrong, that if Jalen Brown's not another guy that would be on their radar. That sounds appetizing. Uh, I haven't thought about it until now, uh, so I'm glad that you kind of planted this seed in my mind, Brian Barrett. Um, (laughs) The biggest obstacle and hurdle to all of that, though, and any of the star search that the Knicks are going to be, you know, undergoing now over the next few years, the Julius Randle contract. And I've seen now enough of Julius Randle in the postseason two years ago, in the postseason this year. He is a losing player. That that's Mm -hmm. what it boils down to. He's going to get his numbers. He's going to make all NBA teams. Listen, you're going to look at Julius' number, Julius's numbers in a regular season, and they are productive. And the Knicks would not be in the position they're in today if he wasn't on the team. But, like, down the road, a year from now, two years from now, four years from now, are the Knicks getting to a championship with Julius Randle as a big part of what they're trying to do? I don't see it. I, I don't. So that's the guy to me that I'm thinking long and hard about moving this summer. Because, again, it's another All-NBA year for him. The contract is crazy as it sounds. The money's always changing in the NBA. In order for those fantasies, like Giannis or Brown or whoever you want to throw my way, in order for them to happen, the Knicks need to put themselves in a better financial state. That has to happen. And I I would try long and hard to see if I can move Julius Randle this offseason. 
Yeah, and he's a bad culture guy too. Like I was that game on Monday night, he misses a wing three and he's just like sulking, doesn't get back on defense to get a layup the other way. So I think he's a bad culture guy as well. But hey, at least they have the money that they could move if they wanted to. I just the whole Jalen thing scares me. That's why I'm eager to see what happens Wednesday night. I think he's gonna make an all NBA team, but I've heard a lot of people talk about the fact that they haven't voted for him. He doesn't show up in the impact metric. So I am scared about the whole Jalen situation. But JJ, I wanted to get to this. The top five moves that have been made this offseason in the AFC East. So it can be a draft pick. It can be in addition to the coaching staff. And of course, it can be a free agent. So I think with number one, we're going to go in the same direction, right? Like it's got to be Aaron Rodgers. This is obvious, even though he's 39 years old. I saw what Brady did after he went to Tampa after the one final bad year with the Patriots. Not even bad year, but bad for Brady in 2019 with the Patriots. I guess the only concern with the Jets bringing in Rodgers would be the offensive line was not particularly great last year. I know Dwayne Brown was banged up most of the season. You got this weird situation with Becton where he's like tweeting that he's a left tackle. You got Salah saying, well, prove you're a left tackle. But other than that, I mean, you went from pretty much one of, if not the worst quarterback situations in the league to having a four-time MVP. So that's got to be number one. I think we agree on that, right? Yeah, that's an absolute slam dunk. And listen, Aaron Rodgers puts the Jets on the map for the first time in a long time. The Jet fan is fired up. They're seeing Rodgers at Ranger games. They're seeing him at Nick games. It seems like he's all about the New York lifestyle. Who could blame him after spending all that time in Green Bay, Wisconsin, for goodness sakes. So no disrespect <laughs> to any of our friends who are listening in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but I'm sorry. It's not hanging out. It's not living in New York City. Not exactly the uh, same extracurricular activities. And listen, I am very intrigued by the idea of what Aaron Rodgers can do. It's a no-brainer for the Jets. It's a slam dunk to have him for a year or two. Does it lead to a championship? I'd probably bet against that. Do I think the Jets find their way to the playoffs next year? I would probably bet on that. So, yeah, without question, Brian, four-time MVP, guy who is, you know, a future Hall of Fame quarterback. The fact that the Jets and the AFC East now has him as a part of the fold, I'm putting him number one. Absolutely. Okay, so number two on my list, and I think we're both going to have this guy, but it may be, may be in a different spot. So my number two is Jalen Ramsey. The Dolphins' defense last season, 27th in total passing yards against, 95.3 passer rating against, which was 27th. Completion percentage against was 27th. They desperately needed this type of addition, and if you look at it, like I love the fact that they got Bradley Chubb last year at the trading deadline. That's another guy, and I know this, this is your team, JJ. The Dolphins, and in this division... You have to play Stephon Diggs twice a year, right? And now you look at it with the Jets, you have to play Garrett Wilson twice a year. Now, I would mention the Patriots, but there's really nobody you're worried about. Like, okay, you play Juju Smith-Schuster twice a year. But I think getting Jalen Ramsey there where that defense has has talent, it just it was a complete dumpster fire last year from a schematic perspective. But I think Jalen Ramsey is sort of that guy that can do everything for this defense and sort of put it over the top. So I would put him at number two. Who do you have second? All right, so we're going to differ a little bit here. We're basically right church, wrong pew. I'm going to go with the hiring of Vic Fangio. I think we're talking about one of the best defensive coordinators in the NFL. Like, there are certain coaches who kind of fit that description. And the minute I heard that Fangio was looking to get back in, he's a failed head coach, but he is a phenomenal defensive coordinator. You look at his defenses in San Francisco. You look at his defenses in Chicago. We're talking about a lot of top five, top ten units. And you mentioned how poorly coached Miami's defense was with Josh Boyer leading the charge. Another failed Belichick assistant, part of the Brian Flores coaching tree. Clearly two years ago, 
Brian Flores was the guy pulling the strings with the Dolphin defense. They underperformed, and I think his presence gets them to another level. Ramsey, big move, no doubt about it. But I'm going to say the overall scheme will benefit that much more from Fangio. So I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit here because I do have Ramsey number three. I know I'm spoiling our little lead and our little back and forth here. So I'm going to go Fangio two and his presence, Ramsey and his presence at three. Okay, so I have Fangio five on my list. So I have him there too. I'm with you. It's a huge move. I just... I put the player over the coach, but it makes sense. I mean, Fangio's a huge move for that team. They desperately needed, and he was the most popular defensive coordinator that was on the market, right? And you look at him last year or two years ago in Denver, his final year, the defense wasn't the problem. They defense were third awesome. in defense. Oh, right? Brian, it was fantastic. Yeah. They just were offensively challenged, and he, he, you know, there were certain guys. We've seen it in the NFL. North Turner is the example I love bringing up all the time. Guy was a terrible head coach, but, like, when you had North Turner calling plays, Everywhere he called plays, the offensive coordinator was fantastic. Like, certain guys are just meant to be coordinators. And I think having Fangio with my nerd, Mike McDaniel there in Miami, I, I love that brain trust. That's, <laughs> that's seriously, though, Brian, that's how high I am on the Fangio hire. Like, I was giddy when the Dolphins announced that a few months ago. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a massive move, and there's two of them in this division. I'll get to one later on. So, okay, so I have Fangio five. You have him uh, second, and you have Ramsey third. Ramsey so third, correct. I'm going to give my third now, and this is this may shock you, JJ. Okay, Christian Gonzalez, baby. Okay, seventeenth okay. overall pick by the Patriots. Okay, this is the missing piece of this defense. And look, unbelievable athlete, four three eight forty at the combine. And if you just look at it, last year this Patriots defense was really good. I mean, they were second in scoring percentage against. They were second in total sacks with fifty four. And or excuse me, they retired for third in sacks with 54. The one thing they're missing is that bona fide legitimate corner. And we saw it, right? Like they had trouble matching up with these guys. T. Higgins, nine for or eight for 128 in a touchdown. Jefferson, nine for 139 in a touchdown. Diggs owns them. Garrett Wilson had a big game against them. And this Patriots defense, I really believe they're going to be an elite unit. I had Steven Ruiz on the other day from the ringer. He said they're going to be the number one defense in the NFL next season based on the personnel that they have. That's his belief. Judon is a really good player. Uche came on to his own last year. This defensive personnel is really good. The one missing piece was the guy they got in the first round. And we've seen these corners, they come into the league. And I'm not saying he's going to be Sauce Gardner, okay? I'm not saying he's going to be that good. But we've seen these corners be really productive in their first year, and it's something the Patriots desperately needed. Now, they also need a number one receiver. They didn't get that, but they did get the corner, so I think this is a massive move for the Patriots. I am surprised by that, and listen, Sauce Gardner was incredible his first year with the Jets. If he can go and be 80% of what Sauce Gardner was for the Jets, you're cooking with something there, and this is the crazy thing about the Patriots, and I'm not the biggest Mac Jones fan in the world, and we'll get to number four on my list in a matter of moments, if you put the Patriots in the NFC, in all seriousness, Brian, if you put them in the NFC, I might argue they're the third best team, the fourth best team. Like they, That's how like crazy the power structure is right now between the AFC and more specifically the AFC East, which in my opinion, it's not even close. It's the best division in the NFL pound for pound. The fact that New England is fourth with the defensive personnel that they have and the head coach that they have, it kind of speaks volumes to what the other three teams bring to the table. So, all right, that's an interesting one. I'm going with your offensive coordinator at number four because I have a lot of respect for Bill O'Brien. You know the deal with the Patriots. They were an absolute joke 
with the way they were coached last year offensively. Patricia, Judge, the plan, and I'm going to say it. I know he's the greatest head coach of all time, but we can criticize him when he makes a lousy decision. He made a lousy decision last year <laughs> with the way he handled that offense. Anybody who's going to tell you otherwise just didn't watch the 2022 New England Patriots. And that's the beautiful thing about the NFL. You get to watch all these teams. I'm watching them. I saw way too many Patriot games for my liking. Their offense was a hot mess. <laughs> O'Brien should come in and should instantly improve them. Now, I don't know if they're going to be a top half offense in the league. Brian, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But at least you have somebody. It's like, you know the adult in the room? You got the adult in the room now, back calling plays, somebody who's been there, he's done that. There's, there's no question now about the chain of command on offense. That's a big move for the Patriots. Bill O'Brien coming back to be the offensive coordinator. Yeah, and you know who else acknowledged that it was a dumb move? Bill Belichick, because he moved on from him after one year. Even Bill himself acknowledged this was a terrible move. Maybe part of it was he didn't have any answers. Hey, when the defense does this, what do we... He didn't know. They had no idea whatsoever. So I had him fourth on my list. So that is my whole list. It's just going to be so much better than having Matt Patricia call play. So I had Rodgers, Jalen Ramsey, Christian Gonzalez, Bill O'Brien. And then, as I mentioned, my fifth was Vic Vangio. So we have your top four, who is Rodgers, Fangio, Ramsey, and O'Brien. Who is your fifth? So I wanted to show that I am fair and balanced to the entire AFC East. And I'm going to okay. put Jordan Poyer re-signing with the Buffalo Bills at number five. And I'm going to tell you why. A lot of people assumed he was gone in the offseason. Like, Buffalo was in a salary cap crunch. This is a guy who's been a leader, a glue guy on their team. And a lot of, a lot of folks are saying, oh, he's going to get overpaid somewhere else. The Buffalo Bills aren't going to be able to keep him. I think having that stability and that presence is so important for that team. Buffalo is a team that has seen their window, Brian, shrink quite a bit. I know Josh Allen's there. I know he's fantastic. The Bills took a major step back last year from where they were two years ago. You can't lose guys like a Jordan Poyer. I, I know it's a re-signing. I know it's not necessarily moving the needle and changing their team, but it avoids further disaster. So I want to throw some Buffalo in there. Uh, I'll give you Jordan Poyer at number five. Yeah, I had it, that's a good one. For my honorable mention, I put Damian Harris in there. One year for $1.7 okay. When he's gonna see dime the entire game, like he's gonna have, he's gonna rush for probably like 800 yards or something next year. He's a lifetime 4.7 yards per carry. That was I hated. Like I, from a Patriots perspective, totally understand why they're not bringing him back. But from a Bills perspective, just a massive move for them. Okay, so that, that's our top five. So I've been leaning towards the Dolphins taking over the Bills in the division. Ooh, I just felt as you mentioned. Okay. Well. You mentioned the fact that a lot went on with that team, right? I mean, I know they added Dalton Kincaid, too, to go in that offense to help out Josh Allen and company and Stephon Diggs, et cetera. But remember, Diggs and Allen had that sort of thing at the end of the year. They got blown out by Cincinnati in the postseason. Diggs is yelling at Josh Allen. But here's my concern with going with the Dolphins over the Bills. It's the quarterback. I like Tua as a player. I, I've come around on Tua. Like last year, I was really down on him. But after seeing him play last year, third in passer rating, he took a massive step. But it's the injuries, right? Like, I just have a difficult time going with the Dolphins over the Bills because I don't know how many games he's going to play. I know he said he contemplated retirement but in the offseason, but he, what he missed last year, four games, five games, every year he's missing games. So that's the only thing holding me back. Like, if Tua had played all 17 games last year, or say like 16 of 17, something along those lines, I would have picked the Dolphins. I just don't trust that he's going to stay healthy. I think that's totally fair. 
it's the number one overarching question that's hanging over the franchise. Because everything else, they got humming. I mean, when he plays, the offense was a well-oiled machine. They got speed. I, I do worry a little bit about their offensive line because when Toronto Armstead is not there, it's a terrible offensive line. And when he is there, it's kind of an average offensive line, Brian. And I'm hopeful that, you know, Boy Wonder is going to make some adjustments and figure out what's going on there because you got good pass rushers across the board in this division. The Jets have a good pass rush. New England has a good pass rush. Buffalo can get after the quarterback if Von Miller is healthy and he's playing. So that that is a concern of mine. But I do like... Now, it can't be for more than three or four games. And also, Brian, you've got to tell me when the injuries are going to be, too. You can't have your quarterback hurt at the end of the year when you need him in the freaking playoffs, for goodness sakes. And that killed yeah. Miami. They had two a start in that, that game in Buffalo. They win by 10-plus points. That's how crummy and how mediocre Buffalo was in that game. Skyler Thompson, you're not going to win that game. Anyway, Mike White, who had his little 15 minutes of fame with the New York Jets, I think he's the perfect backup quarterback. Now, when I say perfect backup quarterback, that doesn't mean if he's playing 13 to 18 games, you're good. I think if he plays, Brian, three to four games, he's coming from the same system, same sort of language with LaFleur. He played well at times for the Jets. I think if he's got to start a couple of games, they upgraded from Teddy Bridgewater and Skyler Thompson. But if two is out more than six games, then the Dolphins ain't winning the division. Simple as that. Yeah, I'm with you, too, in terms of the Mike White ad, I think, is a nice one. Because Bridgewater and Tua, they're stylistically different. Like, Mike White's going to be more similar to Tua, where he gets the ball out quickly. For whatever reason, Bridgewater's never been a guy that got it out quickly. So I did like, that was a smart move, considering you had a plan for the injury history with Tua. All right, so I want to get your take on this as part of the East Coast Bias Pod. I got to go to our friends at FanDuel. Regular season wins over seven and a half for the Patriots. I'm taking the over on the seven and a half. So if you look at it, six tough division games that we've been over that. And then you look, they get the NFC East, which is not easy either. Dallas, no, Philly, the, the schedule, Giants, let's be honest, the Brian, Commanders. The schedule for yeah, both. Yeah, it's tough. The, the AFC East teams, not easy, man. Not easy at all. I mean, the NFC, yeah. that's the and then one you, division the NFC and then you, you don't want to play. AFC West. Yeah, and then you get the AFC West with at least the Chargers for them is at home. And for some reason, Bill just like owns Herbert in the two games they've had. But, you know, the Chiefs, obviously, the Broncos, the Raiders, and then their other matchups, their bonus games, the Steelers, they get the Colts, and they have the Saints as the NFC team, which isn't the worst in the world. But last year, they won eight games with a guy that we talked about earlier in Matt Patricia. I think they're going over the seven and a half that FanDuel has him at right now. Where, where are you at with that, JJ? You think they go over the seven and a half or under? It's a tough number. I think that's a really tough number. You would think in theory, Brian, the answer would be yes. I just would be concerned about how New England is going to stack up with teams in the division. I mean, they have had a monopoly on owning the New York Jets and having two free wins every single time they play the New York Jets. Is that going to happen this year? Obviously, we talked about the Dolphins. They've had their issues with Josh Allen. He's torched them over the last few years. Like, if you tell me New England can go 500 in the division, I love the over. I just don't know what you're going to get in those Patriot division games. And can the Patriots get buried in the division? And does that end up being the difference? I, I lean over because I think they're like an 8-9, 9-18, nine, to be perfectly honest with you. But that's a, that's a very tough number. Tough number. Well, I'll tell you one thing. They're definitely losing in Miami. They tend to do that every year. So that's one loss you can put on the schedule right now. And they're obviously going to lose at least one to the Bills, which will be in Buffalo. But 
I think I'm going to have to sweat that out, but I'm going with the over on that. I, it is, man. It's like that's a division where it's it, there's no easy teams. Like that's the unfortunate part for the Bills, really. Like when the Patriots were winning this division for so many years, competition was terrible. Like outside of like maybe a City, couple of Rex. Yeah. Outside of a couple of Rex Ryan years, there wasn't much there. All right, JJ, before we let you go, we got to get some baseball here. So the AL East, it's a bear of a division. And the Yankees, they enter Tuesday last in the division. They'll probably pick up a win by the time this airs because they're playing Oakland. And the A's are basically not a major league team at this particular point in time. I mean, they're an embarrassment. But this Carlos Rodon thing, kind of a mess, man. They gave him, what, a buck 62? I wanted him for the Red Sox. So, I mean, maybe they dodged a bullet here. I saw his wife was going back at a report calling it bullshit that he wasn't going to pitch this year. So how much trouble do you think the Yankees are in in a division that is extremely tough? Because, I mean, the Red Sox, Pavetta's getting his teeth kicked in tonight, but the Red Sox have been really good. Baltimore's frisky. I think they'll tail off. I believe in the Rays during the regular season, not during the postseason. We've seen that formula doesn't work. And Toronto, I think Toronto's taken a step back, to be honest with you. I saw the Red Sox light up both their supposed-to-be star pitchers in Manoa and Gosman last week. But man, the Yankees, they got to get things together here. They're in major trouble. Now, their offense has been their biggest problem, Brian. I know Rodon not pitching is a huge deal. The Yankee pitching has not been their problem. Their five through nine has been embarrassing. Embarrassing. Like their offensive numbers are way down at the bottom of the list in the American League. Now, they have not had Giancarlo Stanton. He's always hurt. Tremendous player, but he's always hurt. Aaron Judge just came back on Tuesday. They got Bader back. I can't stress this enough. Harrison Bader is a really good player. And they missed Harrison Bader and what he provides from an athletic standpoint and, you know, putting the ball in play and getting hits and all all, all that sort of stuff. The Yankees, to me, are going to do just enough to make the playoffs and are going to do their usual disappearing act when they get into the postseason. And I think that's the worst (laughs) part about where I stand from a Yankee perspective because... I kind of know how it's going to play out in early May. And we got to sit through May, June, July, August, and September, knowing what the end of the game and the end of the show is going to be. Probably in the playoffs. Maybe they'll win a round. Who knows? Maybe they'll win two. But I don't see championship caliber team. At least, Brian, things could change. It's what, May the 9th right now? I'm not planning World Series plans and championship parades with this team anytime soon. Yeah, I th- and I think the Red Sox are getting in, man. This lineup is legitimately for real, and we'll see what sales do. It can do, but I mean, the last start was something else. So I, it, the one real issue for this Red Sox team, the rotation has just been a dumpster oh, fire. Bad. Like there's this whole idea. Oh, well, they got bad, seven dude. for five spots. Yeah, I mean it's bad, and they're gonna have to shorten it out here in the next couple of days. They said Alex Cora said today they're gonna cut it down to five, but. We'll see what Big Maple can bring on Friday night, JJ. He's making his debut as the right. I, I, I was totally starting to think like, about are we that guy. Ever- I always used to like yeah. him. I always liked him when he was a Yankee. Yeah. It's just uh, you're not going to see much of him. That that I do know. Yeah. At least we'll see Paxson on Friday night. We can guarantee that. After Friday night, we don't know. All right. That is John Jastrzemski, of course, from the Ringer Podcast Network. New York, New York, East Coast bias. JJ, thanks so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. It's fun going through the AFC East. This division's going to be nuts. Oh, you ain't kidding. We'll have a lot of fun with it once the fall comes. And uh, good luck to your Celtics. Hopefully they are not joining the Knickerbockers on the golf course uh, in the next couple of days. We shall see. (laughs) I hope not. Thanks, JJ. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, great stuff there from my buddy J.J. John Jastrzemski, ranking the top moves in the AFC East this offseason. I will say this, too, about his Yankees. They're in trouble, man. That rotation is not great. That lineup has not been particularly good this season. I know the Red Sox, of course, just lost. We'll get into them in a second. But that Yankees team, underachieving. You wonder how much longer Aaron Boone's going to last there in New York. All right, we got time for a couple of calls and a couple of emails. So let's get to a call first. That number is 617-396-7172. Brian, uh, wow, just watched uh, T.J. Tucker hit a three. Philly's up 110-91, to go. Doesn't feel like this is uh, going to change. Celtics just outplayed in the most important game of their season tonight. And um, I, I want to know, maybe I, normally I just get mad and yell at you and then you sort through my thoughts, but um, when was the last time in Boston uh, that we had a good team with a Bad coach. I think maybe uh, some of the Sox teams. I'm on, you know, 25, so maybe the 2014 Sox range. There was a real bad season in there after winning the World Series. Um, but you know, maybe it's just that we have gotten so used to at least good coaching, even with our bad teams. Um, any of the Celtics' last three coaches, the coaches I remember in my lifetime, um, I'd take any of them tonight. Um, but just Heartless, lackluster, other than Tatum, I mean, just unwatchable um, in in the most important game of the year. It's disappointing. I don't know where Grant was. Um, he's played great all season. Is, is he hurt? Did I miss that? Um, Al's not hitting threes, so maybe we go with Grant at the five and hope maybe Grant can find those threes. Man, I would have cheered to see Mike Muscal out there tonight. I mean, I'm just at that point. I would have taken Blake. I like the Pritchard minutes. I thought he tried hard wanted to be there but um this is just disgusting it feels like i did in game six of the warriors game last year i, I don't even know get mad man just sit here and, and be disappointed so um hope that makes sense love the show um thanks bye okay so to answer your first question about when was the last time We've had a good team with a bad coach here locally. It would be the 2013 Red Sox where they won the World Series with John Farrell. Farrell was an absolutely atrocious tactical manager. I mean, you can go back to that Cardinals World Series and count the mistakes he made. He's awful. The problem was for the Cardinals is it was a battle to see who could be worse of those two managers. And Mike Matheny beat out John Farrell as the manager that was worse because he kept pitching to David Ortiz in that particular series. But my overwhelming point about that is just the fact that that would be the last time that you had a bad coach. I'm not with Joe Mazzula. Like, it's tough for me to just say, hey, this guy is a horrible coach because he wasn't meant to be the coach. He's 34 years old. Right. And if you think about it, if this email situation, if it comes to light 
a couple of months earlier, Will Hardy's the coach. And I know Will Hardy's young too, but remember, he was the top assistant last year for Ime. So in that particular situation, it would have been very easy to just elevate Will Hardy, who had a really good year with Utah. And I'm not saying that Joe Mazzula can never be a great coach, because I do think there are some things that he does really well, like embracing the three-point situation is something and winning the math game. It's something I'm, I'm not against. It's just in this series against Doc Rivers, I just feel like tactically he's made a lot of mistakes and the late game and Doc has made some really, really good adjustments. And you're just looking at the difference between Missoula and Doc. Doc's making all these adjustments and Missoula's doing nothing in terms of making the adjustments. And the other thing I would just say is the late game stuff. Joe Missoula, two years from now, after having two years of coaching experience, when he realizes that Smart's walking the ball up at the end of game four and Jason Tatum has the ball almost near the logo with 10 seconds left, you're not going to get a good shot off. You got to call a timeout there. Like it's on the players. Like they should have been going quicker. But as you gain more experience, you would have called the timeout there because that's what you naturally needed to do. You needed to bail out your players. So I have a tough time just saying like Joe Mazzulla is a bad coach. I don't think that's the case. I just feel like what's shown up in the postseason is there has been some inexperience. And just the quote tonight about we had the intention to play hard, that's just that's a poor quote. I mean, that you think Ime would have said that last year? He would have said, no, we didn't play hard enough. We did not come out with the right mindset. Like, that's just I, I don't know what he's doing with that. quote. It's a horrible quote. All right. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can if you're mad after game six, or if you're happy they win, you certainly can. 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Of course, you can always email us as well at offthepike at gmail.com, and that's where we bring in our producer, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, man, how you doing? Another rough night here with the Boston sports scene. How are you, man? I, mean, I don't know where to start. That was That was probably the most it felt like work watching one of these games this entire season you know like i wanted to turn off with 10 minutes left but i was like all right you know it's 18 points 19 points but you gotta do what you gotta do oh yeah that was that was brutal absolute torture it was brutal all right so hey let's get to these emails here because i'm sure the people are riled up uh the the inbox is, is on fire right now this is from tyler tyler writes i don't care if he finishes with 50 points jason tatum sucked in this game he was so weak going to the rim, constantly begging for calls, and rarely goes for an offensive rebound. If I had to guess, I would think that Brown and Brogdon are pretty tired of carrying the team for the first half, only to be forced to watch Tatum struggle and struggle and struggle. If he isn't playing well, let the best depth in the league take over. And Joe Missoula, what the hell? Why are we the only team in the league that doesn't match up on? Harden fouls on the first play of the game, and not one time do we try to get him into a matchup to draw a second foul. And then he picks up his second foul, and still, no attempt to draw his third, even though he can't foul and already is a turnstile on defense. I've never hated a team where I like all the individual players more. Still, Tyler writes, Celtics in seven. Good night and good luck. Thoughts, Brian? All right. Well, at least he still has the faith, so I appreciate that. I don't know if I have as much faith as he does right now. But I would also say, like, after that game five last year, this feels a little bit different just because they got crushed, but... I didn't have a lot of faith after they lost game five with the Bobby Portis rebound last year and they were able to respond to game six. So I guess I'll give them I'll say, okay, that's, I guess, a reason to have some level of faith as it pertains to the first part of his email, the Tatum thing. I just wish that they could find more ways to get Jalen Brown involved because it does feel like Tatum at this particular point. Obviously, I gave you the numbers earlier. Last four games, he's been atrocious from the field. And I wish there was somebody else that would sort of 
outside of Jalen that could sort of stabilize this offense as well. Because it feels like what they're doing in these first quarters, where Tatum has not hit a single shot last 24 minutes in the first quarter, he's running the entire offense, right? It's him running the show. I just wish they'd get him off the ball more, try to create more opportunities for him off the ball, and then maybe Jalen gets going because we've seen Jalen have these good first quarters. So I hope that's part of the calculus going forward is everything doesn't need to be on Tatum in the first quarter because Tatum's not that type of player either. He's just not a guy right now that we've seen that matches up with these other superstars across the league. I wish he was because at some point, your best player needs to win you a playoff game. Tatum hasn't won you a single playoff game. He hasn't won you a single playoff game so far. And then the Missoula thing, the matchup hunting, that's a way that they could do it. Like, okay, they have weak defenders. James Harden is a bad defender. Maxie is a bad defender, and he's small, diminutive in stature for an NBA player. That is a way to get Tatum going. That's a way to get Jalen going. That's a way to get all these guys going. Derek White has been non-existent. When he has a guy like Maxie on him, why don't you press that button every once in a while? And on the other side, we see it with Doc. How often do we see James Harden in an advantageous matchup where he's going against Al or he's going against Rob or he's going against Malcolm Brogdon? Basically, anybody against Jalen, they find ways to get the good matchups for them, and the Celtics don't do that. I totally agree, and that's sort of what the postseason is. Like, I remember when LeBron was really in his prime with Cleveland, not to say that LeBron stinks. Like, he's a really good player, and they could easily, Lakers could easily win the championship. They're up 3-1. But like when he was at his peak and they were playing the Warriors over and over again in the finals, and we actually saw this a little bit in the game on Monday night, he would just say, hey, whoever Steph is covering, come up and set a screen. Like, I'm not saying the Celtics have to do that, but every once in a while, it's okay to get out of your flow offense, right? The beautiful game, as the Warriors used to call it, and go after weak links. Like, how, what would Bill Belichick be doing right now? He would say, oh, let's go after the weak defenders. Like, that's what the Patriots did for years. It's like, all right, remember in that Colts in 2014 where they had no rush defense and Bill had the best quarterback in the world? And he's like, hey, you know what, Tom? Jonas Gray is going to run the ball like 50 Jonas times in this Gray. game. Yeah. <laughs> and and then in the postseason, we're going to do the same thing, but we cut Jonas Gray, so it's going to be LeGarrette Blunt. Like, you have to take advantages of matchups, and you can't just be yourself every game. Like, you kind of have to be a chameleon in some ways and more from different game plans to game plans. And especially it's not as if the Celtics offense is working right now. It's not working. So that should be a reason for you to match up. That's a good email. I would be match up hunting more too. It's a good point. Yeah, it is a good point. And you made a good point too, about getting Tatum going like on paper, that makes sense. But unfortunately that's just not working right now. It's like, that's, you can't rely on that. So like you said, you have another superstar. Let's give him the rock. Um, this is another email about Missoula. This is from Dave Taylor in North Carolina. Dave writes, B squared, question for you on Missoula's playing time allocation. Unless he was hurting, why do you think Grant Williams' minutes went down from the low 20s in game three to 12 minutes in game four? I think he played eight minutes tonight, so it went down further. Uh, Grant is invaluable in harassing, muscling up, and wearing down in bead, which spares 37-year-old Al Horford from bearing 100% of the brunt of guarding the big guy. Um, clearly Al's offensive effectiveness suffers from exhausting defensive effort on Embiid. We could have used those extra points uh, when JB and JT took turns disappearing. Embiid's going to get his points no matter who guards him, so let's not burn out Al when we have alternatives. Thanks, Brian, and all the best. All right, so I think there's a couple of reasons that. First of all, and I know Grant's given a ton of energy defensively and all that, but I think one of the reasons is something I alluded to earlier with the Rob Williams matchup where – 
if he's out there with Grant Williams and he's covering a shooter like Niang, he really can't be impactful, right? Because he has to stay glued to Niang. Like that, if Niang's out there and Embiid's out there and Rob's out there with a center, Rob's on Niang and the whole idea of Rob is just useless because the idea is he can muck things up, come over and be a shot blocker. If he does that when Niang's out there, well, then Niang's going to hit a three because we've seen this guy's a good three-point shooter. So what they've done is they've taken Tucker off the court and they don't play McDaniels at all anymore because he can hide on those guys. So the theory, I believe at least, is they want Rob on the court in some capacity. So even though it's a terrible matchup to have Rob against Embiid, they rather have Rob on the court than Grant Williams because Rob also gives you something more than Grant does on the offensive end. Like Grant, I get... He has been a good three-point shooter over the past two years, although the second half of the season he really tailed off. He hasn't shot the ball particularly well in the postseason when he's got in his opportunity. Rob's a roll threat. He can run the court in transition. That's the idea there. I don't think it's perfect, but I think that is the idea. I don't love the Robert Williams matchup against Joel Embiid, but I'd rather play Robert Williams than Grant Williams. And if their idea and the theory is, well, we can't play the two bigs together, then I'd much rather play Rob over Grant Williams, even if I don't don't love that matchup. I think that's what their theory is on that. Mm-hmm. Although I, I wouldn't be surprised in game six where you have to sort of try out everything. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some double big lineup. I wouldn't. And I, look, I'm not saying it's going to work, but at some point you got to try different stuff, right? Like Steve Kerr, I give him credit. Like this guy's always changing up his lineup. So the one thing he does yeah. is he doesn't change his lineup back until he loses and then he reacts I wonder if we see more Rob and Al together just to try anything out because what we saw, the defense, it's not working. Like whatever defense you play, it's not working. So I wonder if they do try Rob and Al back together in this game six. And then, I mean, what do you think about the offense in terms of Al? Like, do you just, I mean, he has to take those shots. Like you said, when against the Hawks and they're spacing well and they're guarding him, it changes the offense. But if he goes over seven, what what do you do? Yeah, and I wonder too, Jamie, if part of this is just, and I know we hit some in the game four loss, but I do wonder if part of this is he's playing every other day during the regular season. He didn't play back-to-backs, and I get these aren't back-to-backs, but he's in his late 30s, and on one end, he's guarding a guy that is seven foot three, 280 pounds. He's taking that pounding, and when he's not taking that pounding, he's trying to cover James Harden, or Tyrese Maxey out on an island, just like in the previous series, he was trying to cover Trey Young out on an island when they kept getting that matchup. So Al Horford is having to expend the most energy on the defensive end Mm. of the floor. And I wonder at times if those legs are just shot because some of these misses, O of seven, some of those misses are just really, really bad. Yeah. I think like you said too, I think you do have the depth. So like you said, maybe it's time to get creative in game six. Yeah, I mean, we didn't see any creativity until Peyton Pritchard came into the game. Like, that's the move that he went to. I'd be down for more Pritchard in game six. Hey, why, get some shooting out there. Might as well try yeah. it out. I mean, I'd try some wacky shit in that game at this point. If nothing's working, I'd try some wacky lineups. Yeah. Like, if Embiid's not on the court, I, I'd try an all lineup with no bigs. I would, yeah, if, go small. If Embiid, Embiid's not working. Yeah. In the non-Embiid minutes, what I do next time, maybe they just want to go with Rob. I would go with this lineup, Tatum, Jalen, Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, Marcus Smart, and see what the fuck happens. They haven't tried that all yeah, season. See what happens, man. Like, try some different things. Oh, yeah. It's I, I'll tell you, though, Jamie, Thursday night, I usually look forward to playoff games watching them. I just feel like 
my stomach all day. Like I'm gonna have knots in right. my stomach. I'm gonna be anxious. Like I'm not gonna be excited for that game. You know what I mean? Because you're possibly facing elimination, and who knows? Like if they lose that game, something with the organization is gonna change. Something will change. A very long summer. Yeah, I feel. You know what I feel bad for right now? Brad. Brad has put together like a good loaded team, and this is yeah. his reward. Oh, brutal, man. I mean, I just, I just, I need to know what happened with Ime, just in terms of why the hell we're in this position in the first place, you know? Yeah, I mean, when, we'll probably never find out for legal reasons, right? But, I mean, the Ime situation. It's criminal, criminal mal- malpractice to leave this roster with a guy who's like your third bench coach. And again, like you said, it's not even fair to put it on Joe Mazzulla's door. He got handed this job, and what do you know? It's it's hard in the playoffs against these veteran coaches, but it's just so frustrating. Yeah, and I know one of the things that Bill talked about on his podcast is they needed like a veteran presence, like a Frank Vogel-type guy. Like They don't have that assistant, and Bill made this point on yeah. his pod, that's been in the league for like 10 years, right? That experience veteran guy that you can turn to when you need the help. They don't have that guy in the Celtics staff, which you would think if there was ever a staff in the NBA that needed that veteran ex-head coach on their staff, it would be the Celtics. Yeah, like you said, there's going to be a lot of second guessing if things don't go well on Thursday. All right, Jamie, great stuff, man. I appreciate it. Keep the faith, I guess. (laughs) We'll try. All right, if you want to leave us an email at offthepike at gmail.com, you can do that. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. All right, I did want to get to the Sox real briefly here because they lost to the Braves, and what we saw in that game was more of what we've seen all season long from Nick Pavetta, which is a lot of loud contact, and quite frankly, he just is, at this particular point in time, he's not a good pitcher. You look at the first inning, 3-1 count, Ronald Acuna Jr., who my buddy Lou Merloni texted me earlier in the day, Acuna Jr., hits north of 500 in the first inning. So first of all, you get yourself in a bad count, 3-1, 91.6 mile an hour fastball, middle of the zone, what do you know, single from Ronald Acuna Jr. Because he worked you into a 3-1 count. He didn't have his command early. He makes you pay. Second batter of the game is Matt Olson. Hanging curveball, middle of the zone, see you later, 2-0 Atlanta. So right away, you're down 2-0 in this game. Then he walked Riley, again, an example of him not having command. Then he hit Murphy. Okay, so he walked a guy, then he hit a guy. This is so his first four batters of the game. Single, home run, walk, hits a guy. Then he struck out Rosario swinging, but then Murphy goes to second on a wild pitch on a four-seamer that missed by a mile. I mean, this thing was not even close. And then Albie singles on a four-seamer up in the zone, makes it three to nothing. Marcelo Zunia uh, grounds out. He makes it four to nothing when the run comes in. So after the first inning of the game, you're down four nothing against the Atlanta Braves, who have one of the best lineups in Major League Baseball. And even though he's not the same pitcher he once was, they have a good starter on the mound in Charlie Morton. So basically, you're done after the first inning in this game. And he finishes. He gives up seven earned in four innings, eight hits. And if you look at it now on the season, he's just all his numbers have gone down. The hard hit rate this year is 51.2%, which is 104th out of 170 starters entering this game. And if you think about it, that's balls off the bat 95 plus. So almost 52%, over 51% of his batted balls are off the bat at 95 plus. It's just way too much allowed contact. And if you look at it tonight, 19 batted balls, 10 of those are hard hit. It's 52.6%. So even worse than he ordinarily is. So I just... I don't know really at this point what he does well. 
where you look at it, 2.05 home runs per nine innings, which is 97th out of those 107 starting pitchers. And he's now given up, what, eight home runs in his six starts this season after giving up another home run in this one tonight. He's gotten some good fortune, too. Like, his expected ERA is 6.31, and that's better than his actual ERA. Like, he's actually, in that game last week against Toronto, he got lucky that the wind was blowing in because he would have given up some more home runs in that one. And then he walked three batters. I mentioned he hit a batter, he walked a batter in the first inning. The walk rate is at 9.0%, which is in the 45th percentile. So I just, at this particular point in time, I don't know what Nick Pavetta does well. He doesn't have command. He walks guys. He doesn't have good enough stuff to be a high strikeout guy. And he gives up some of the loudest contact in Major League Baseball. If you look at his barrel percentage on the season, it's the worst in Major League Baseball. Worst of anybody in the sport. So he gives up loud contact. He doesn't strike guys out. And he walks guys. I just, this guy has gotten worse from where he was a season ago and where he was two years ago. Instead of getting better as his career has gone on, he's actually gotten worse. And if you look at it now, this rotation and this Red Sox team, I talked about it. It's great how great this lineup has been. Like this team is much better than I thought it was going to be. I was talking to JJ about it. I believe they have a real opportunity to make a postseason run, but they've just lost way too many games because their starting rotation has put them in holes. Coming into the game tonight, 27th in starters ERA at 5.89. And you can't do that against a team like the Atlanta Braves that has aspirations to win a World Series. They just won it two years ago. Their lineup is absolutely stacked. You cannot fall behind against this team, right? And then one other note on this is Cora today sort of threw some water on the whole idea of a six-man rotation because Paxton's coming back. He's making the start on Friday against the Cardinals. He said, well, I'll sit down and talk about it. People are going to be thrilled that they're going to be in the rotation. Others are going to be upset. At the same time, they've got a job to do. You've still got to get people out. So we're looking at Pavetta, Bayo, Paxton, Sale, Kluber, and Whitlock's going to make his way back, okay? So Pavetta, I just, I don't know what role he can play. He's not going to be great in the bullpen. I know he had a nice stretch there, like he came into the postseason game against Tampa, and he threw the ball well in that one game in the postseason. And he had a couple of appearances out of the bullpen. And I know that if you look at him, you say, oh, you know, he's got a good curveball. He's got a good fastball. But the numbers have never bared that out. Yeah, he's his curveball looks nice sometimes, but he never gets really good results on any of his pitches. And actually, if you look at it on the season, just like we saw tonight in the game, and not to say he was great after this, but his numbers actually get better as the game goes on, where he has to sort of feel his way through. Like, first time through the lineup prior to the game tonight, 283 opponents batting average, 946 OPS. So he's bad early. The second time through the order, the numbers are significantly better. 229 in terms of the batting average against compared to 283. 174 the third time through. So maybe it's because he throws a lot of curveballs, he's got to feel his way through, but the problem is, in the first inning, has been his worst inning. 292, 357, 542 slug, 899. So this is a guy that is apparently going to be, if he goes to the bullpen, can you really depend on him to be good? Now, the stuff will be up because he won't have to think about going through the start. Maybe he'll throw the ball harder. But I just don't think you'll get the results from him because he doesn't have good control. Hulk, to me, profiles as a good reliever, right? As we told you, basically unhittable the first time through the order. 130 and a 374 OPS, second time through 364 batting average, 833 OPS. As a reliever last year, he had a 214 opponent's batting average compared to 259 
as a starter with a 353 on base percentage. So this to me is the no brainer. Like you put Hulk in the bullpen because he can actually be a weapon there. And my guess is, unfortunately, I bet that Bayo goes down to AAA because you have all these starters. And if you look at Kluber, he's actually thrown the ball better over his last three starts. Seven earned in his last three starts, a 386 ERA. He did have that game against Toronto where he had the four walks, but he got himself back on track. So I imagine with the ability to send Bayo down, they'll do that. They'll keep Kluber, of course, in the rotation, let him eat up innings. But then what are you going to do with Garrett Whitlock when he comes back as well, right? Because... Garrett Whitlock, he tends to get these injuries as a starter, TJ as a starter, hip injury as a starter, and the most recent injury as a starter. Second time through the order, it's been bad this year. And the other thing I would mention, last year as a reliever, 179 opponents batting average compared to as a starter, 261. So the Red Sox are really going to have to ask themselves a question. They know that they have an elite reliever in Garrett Whitlock. Do they want him to just be that elite reliever this year, or are they so contingent or so committed to trying to see if he's a starter or not, because he's got a lot to figure out. Remember, I told you earlier this week or last week that the separation between the changeup and the fastball has never been closer together, which is not good because he's throwing his changeup faster and his fastball slower. So if it was me, I would just say, you know what? He's getting all these injuries. Let's put him in the bullpen and let's see what we have there. Because right now, when I look at it, I know I have that as a guarantee. And this team is good enough to say, let's use Garrett Whitlock in that weapon role. I wish Bayo would stay up, but I just don't think that's going to be the case right now. And with Pavetta, I just really don't know what you do. I don't think he's going to be a good reliever, and I know he's a bad starter. I just feel like Pavetta, at this particular point, he's not a good pitcher. One other Red Sox-related note, Jake Diekman is signing with the Tampa Bay Race. Jake Walkman, as I called him. So this season, he was DFA'd by Chicago, 22.4% walk rate. 200th of 200 relievers. He had a minus 3.4% strikeout to walk ratio. So he, he was walking more guys than he was striking out. Which, sorry, that's almost impossible to do. It's 197th in Major League Baseball. Only four pitchers are in the negative. Jake Walkman, properly named, is one of them. I it, it, That's unbelievable to have... A negative strikeout to walk ratio is, it's very rare. Walkman has found a way to do it. He has a 212 whip, which is 196. Last year with the Red Sox, prior to him being traded, his walk rate was at 17.5%. 171st of 171 qualifiers. The whip was 149, 155th, and he had 12 meltdowns tied for the second most. So... I never wanted to see this guy pitch. Now we're going to see him in the division. And all I can say is this. If the Rays get this guy right, I am going to absolutely lose my mind because this guy pissed me off so much with the Red Sox last year. I was doing, for my former employer, all these post-game shows. He slowed the game down because he walked the ballpark. He's throwing balls in the other batter's box. He has no idea where the ball's going. He's throwing the ball eight feet over the catcher's head. If this guy, if the Rays get this guy right, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to completely lose my mind. I don't know why I find it so funny, though. (laughs) The negative strikeout to walk ratio. That's an achievement. If you can do that, that is a real, real achievement. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys after the Celtics and 76ers game six do or die for the seas coming up on Thursday.